Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. New activation and upfront payment for three-month plan required. Taxes and fees extra. Additional restrictions apply. See mintmobile.com for full terms. Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode three. Uh, this is Richie here, along with JM. That's me. And in this installment, we're talking all about world building, a source of joy and frustration for many fantasy writers. I think that's fair to say. But before we get on to that, we're going to tackle our listener questions. Yep. So we had uh, a few questions come in over uh, Facebook and YouTube. And we picked one for our prize this time around. Joy Pixley asks, what about talking about animal-related tropes? For instance, animals as familiars or witches that turn into animals. I always like hearing examples where the trope was used well and other examples where it came off flat or boring. So the last two episodes we were talking about tropes and cliches um how they're done poorly how they're done well so use of animals or anthropomorphic characters are another common trope in fantasy um one of the very first fantasy books that i remember reading as a kid that was really inspiring was martin the warrior which is part of the red wall series where all the characters are literally all the characters are animals the main characters are are mice and uh, they live in a red wall abbey there's mice and and rabbits and and the the enemies I think are weasels or rats or something like that. You find animals being used in fantasy a lot as either characters or um, magical elements. So animals are everywhere in in my books, and I think it's just one. It's just part of our world that animals are there, but I'm also an animal lover myself, so. Uh, I find that you know characters who have bonds with animals, whether it be dogs or or horses or or birds or whatever, um, that's part of creating an interesting character for me and a compelling character is is how they relate to the the natural world. Yeah, I definitely agree. I think it's a great question as well because it is quite easy to fall into bad traps when it comes to including animals in stories. And I think with some stories, people write them, write, write in animals, include animals as just props, as like means to an end. Whereas I think where I've seen it done a lot better, a lot more interesting, or done in more interesting ways, is when the animals are given personalities. So I always remember George R. R. Martin's novellas tales of dunk of egg dunk and egg and dunk is the hedge knight and a big part of his profession is to have horses that are able to joust so he has a very close bond to his horses and when they die 
so, sorry for the spoiler. Um, it's a big deal, and you feel quite touched as a reader. So I think given animals' personalities is a big part. They're not just props, things to tag along to the story. Um, and including characters that get along quite well with animals or have connections with animals makes them more likable. I think it is the, the classic uh, example of how to make a character likable or unlikable um, is if you make a character kick a dog, he instantly becomes unlikable. And if you have a character who strokes the dog, it's more likable. So I think uh, that's something to bear in mind as well. And I'm trying to think of examples of of stories that use animals in an interesting way. And I, I can't think of one in in fantasy, but I can think of one in science fiction. There's a there's a, a short story called the uh, The Game of Rat and Dragon. And it's uh I, it's a very kind of it's a short story, a very complicated short story. It's um set out in space with spaceships and whatnot. And um, I can't remember the key details, but part of it is that the spaceships have to deal with a alien entity that's out in space that is, that is so fast that the humans can't respond to it. So what they do is they, they like mind meld a human and a cat because yeah. the cats are able to respond to these these aliens instinctively and protect the ships so mm. they basically wire cat consciousnesses into the ships and it's 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 very weird and confusing but it's 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 a very famous uh science fiction short story that uh uses animals in an interesting way yeah well speaking of good examples um I've- Quite a topical one at the moment with the, the TV show just coming out on HBO and BBC is Dark Materials by Philip Pullman, which has something very similar with the mind meld. So each person has a familiar, an animal that takes that. I think it can take different forms, but they do tend to stick to one form. And that familiar is, is connected via the mind to the person. But everyone walks around. I suppose it's like walking around having a little Pokemon. So, yeah, good question there, Joy. I enjoyed that one. And then uh, I'm going to send you... Well, originally, last episode, I mentioned I was going to send a copy of my book, In the Valley of Magic. But now that we actually have this Of Metal and Magic compendium out, I will actually contact you and see which one you would prefer. Um, I'll basically give you a menu of ebook options for uh, which one you want to have as your prize. And then, as always... uh, keep sending in your questions and we'll pick one for next episode and we'll send you uh send you a book or something as a uh, as a reward but moving on to the topic at hand world building so the previous two episodes we kind of dived into a lot of examples of what's been done in fantasy and um what's common what's uncommon we're not actually going to do that this time around we're actually going to talk uh writing and the mechanics of writing so we're not going to dive into what makes your what makes a good magic system or um you know what makes an interesting fantasy race you can find articles online about those sorts of things how to develop your world building ideas that part of the process is the creative part of the process and we don't want to go ahead and tell you how to be creative or 
put limits on your ideas. Definitely. Um, in this episode, what we're going to talk about is once you actually, once you've developed your world and you have the ideas, how do you deliver those ideas to the reader in a way that does not overwhelming or boring? So you've got all these great, great ideas. Now, how do you offer them to the reader without being confusing, boring, or just annoying? And I like to think of uh, a few basic principles when it comes to world building and the, and the technical aspect of delivering world building to the reader. Number one is the first thing you need to think about whenever you have a, a, a world detail in your mind is, is it necessary for the story at hand? So you are, you're writing a book or writing a short story. It is a, it is a specific isolated narrative that is dealing with a specific thing. Every detail in that story should, should be relevant to the narrative that you're trying to, you know, convey. You shouldn't be injecting it with, with fluff that doesn't have any bearing on the narrative. So that's number one. Number two, is it the right time and place in the narrative to introduce this detail? There's a tendency to try to shove everything in right at the beginning and you, you eliminate mystery and you eliminate any sort of nuance. So that's number two, time and what is the time, correct time and place to uh, inject the detail? And then three is what is the best method for providing that information either through, um, through, uh, exposition or dialogue or uh, description or something along those lines. So those are the three, the three core principles we're going to talk about uh, moving forward. Yeah. So getting started, we're going to look at uh, the first principle that I have in mind, it, which is when you're, when you have a world building element, the first thing you should think about is, is this necessary for the story at hand for the narrative that I am composing right now? is this world building element relevant? And as we um, talk through uh, the world building mechanics, um, we're gonna throw out different examples. My, my main example that I'm gonna be using here is The Witcher, just because it's a big thing right now. I don't know if you've seen the, the new Witcher TV show on Netflix, it's, it's pretty good, but it's not without its problems. And um, these problems, uh, narrative problems, uh, go back to the book, the books themselves. Um, I uh, did a book review of the first book on my blog some time back, and I, I dived into some of the the issues that are all really world building related. Um, a very kind of boring, bland way of delivering the world building, and a, a bit of overwhelming um, detail. So um, I'm going to use The Witcher as my example, and Richie's going to use some other examples, but. First thing, is it necessary to the story at hand? So you can think of a key word, principle of world building as being less is better. Um, all the world details that you have, like anything else related to your story, should be relevant to the plot and the character of the current story. So you have a plot arc, you have a character arc for this story, whether it be a short story, a novella, a novel, um, or a series. But there is a specific plot arc, a specific character arc that you're dealing with, and all the details in the book should be relevant to those arcs. The thing is that fantasy authors are 
or authors in general are very proud of our creations. Um, we get, we have all these great ideas and we know behind the, behind the curtain, we know all of these little different um, intricacies about how our world it works and uh, who our characters are and what their backstories are. And we just, we're just bursting at the seams to, to, to share these ideas with the reader. But the problem is that you're going to overwhelm your reader. You're going to confuse your reader or you're just going to bore them if you're bombarding them with, with details that, yeah, they're fun details about this world. But if I can't make a connection of why this is relevant to what's happening to the character that I am immediately concerned with, then it's just a distraction. What do you think, uh, Richie? Definitely. Yeah. I think that's a big point. I also think that writers sometimes grow concerned that they don't think the reader is going to understand the world and the principles that they're trying to explain. So they over explain things and that just makes it boring. Um, so I think what you said there, less is better, I think is a great principle. And it, it's very similar to a principle that, or a, a bit of advice, well building advice that I came across a few years ago called the iceberg. Have you heard of the iceberg? I heard it from you actually. Oh, nice. Influencing. (laughs) (laughs) So the iceberg, the philosophy of the iceberg is essentially the iceberg sits in water and you only see the tip of the iceberg above the surface of the water and the real mass of of the iceberg is beneath the water and that is meant to be the same in regards to your story. So all of your well-building mechanics, all these brilliant details you spent decades designing sits beneath the surface of the story and it might never ever appear above into the, above surface you never see you just see the tip of the iceberg so essentially you reveal just a little part of your world while holding back much more and but the writer knows the whole iceberg the writer has access to all the information that that is beneath the beneath the surface in order to those elements that are revealed in order for them to be consistent and make sense it's important that the writer knows you know the big picture but the reader doesn't need to know that they just need to to see that it's consistent definitely i think if you it's easy to turn around and say well if if you're not going to use any of that information why would you bother in order to write the story, to understand the story, you need to develop these things, um, especially if these different aspects of a world play important roles in your story. Because as soon as you come to write them parts, you're going to be stumped. You're going to you, your flow is going to stutter, and you're going to find that you you need to go back and develop parts in a bit more detail. And, so, then the, and then the reader is going to be able to tell if you're just winging it and just making things up because it's not yeah. going to be consistent and it's not, the world isn't going to mesh. It's not going to feel real. So part of, part of conveying a, a sense of a, a real world is that there's a foundation and, and there's a, a backstory and a history that you in your head, you, you know it as the author. Um, so when you're conveying little details or when you're dropping little bits in, in dialogue or a little slang 
uh, idiom phrases, um, it comes out as real because it's already been, it's part of a a, a greater picture. The reader doesn't need to know the greater picture. They just need to feel like it's coming from somewhere. Yeah, that's a great point. So you mentioned the Witcher, Jay. Um, What are your concerns and what what irked you when you were reading that book? So I think, um, and it, it just, it kind of uh, remind. I was reminded when I was watching the, the the TV show. So the new TV Netflix TV show show is based off of the books, and you can you can really see a lot of the same problems, a lot of the same narrative problems carried forward. the The narrative structure of The Witcher is is really a, a mess, and there's just way too much going on. So before the reader or the viewer can get a grasp of the key characters. So in particular, uh, we're talking about Geralt. Geralt is the, the main character, the Witcher, the, the title character. Um, before the, the, the reader or the viewer has any kind of idea of who this person is, the, the showrunners are just dumping politics and, and a whole bunch of other things on the audience that have no immediate bearing on the the current narrative thread. So the result is a very slow and confusing narrative that distracts from the immediate character development. This element, this issue that you see in the TV show, again, it comes from the book. The books were, were doing it the same way. Um, and the result is uh, a narrative that is convoluted and confusing. And uh, in order to compensate for the way the books are structured, um, the the TV show producers threw in a, a bunch of time jumping. So where we are with one character, the, the, the actual time in, in the plot, where we are with one character is not where we are with a different character that we're seeing at the same time in the show. But you don't really realize it until you're two or three episodes in. And when you see one character who previously died is suddenly alive and there's no there's no time stamping or there's nothing that that conveys that you're moving around in time it's just very jarring i um, never knew that as well that yeah that jarred with me and the the thing that really bothers me is uh, a lot of people who have re- reviewed it and are trying to write off this thing is not a problem uh the, there's some articles that recently came out they're like oh hey netflix has released a timeline so now all that time jumping uh you don't need to be confused by it it's all solved you should not need a timeline or an external uh appendix to understand the a core narrative like if if your reader has to look at a reference to understand what's going on you failed as a as, as a writer really definitely, definitely um, yeah. everything the reader needs to know needs to be in the core narrative uh, appendices and references can be helpful they should not be necessary to understand what's going on um yeah and the other thing another thing that re- the thing that that basically turned me off with the book was that a lot of the world building is delivered through a bunch of people just sitting around and talking and nothing was really going on so there there's kind of a crisis going on in the background with with the core character Geralt and um uh, the young princess uh, Siri, and there's something really important happening, and then you'll kind of the the story will pan pan to the left, and you'll you'll just have this scene of a bunch of lords talking politics over a table when something else more important is happening. 
it's it's very done very poorly and done um uh in a in a way that's really irrelevant uh to the core narrative yeah i think that does disrupt the tension using that structure can help though if you know that you've you've got you can end on a cliffhanger and you want your readers to keep on turning the page and get into that to, to picking up that plot line uh, but you've got a bit of a dull part in between it can help it can help the story the structure of the story i think it but like you say it does have to have relevance you can't just cut to something completely different i, I think um, the problem with the witcher is that um when all this stuff be all the politics being introduced early on really it really isn't relevant it's not relevant until until Geralt meets Ciri and you understand that she's this this princess of a lost kingdom um all that politics doesn't matter up to that point so by injecting it early on you're overwhelming the reader overwhelming the viewer instead of focusing on character development which is where you should you should be at the beginning in general the witcher is just overwhelming with detail and the only real reason why it gets away a lot of the time is because a lot of the world building details are cliche and derivative so you have woodland elves with bows who are oppressed and you have dwarves who like to fight and are blacksmiths and you have dragons who terrorize people and hoard treasure and you have a council of mages that are the kind of the hidden illuminati that controls the world and it's all very conventional fantasy that any fantasy fan can jump in and they automatically understand what it is so you don't actually need to explain so the 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 witcher author doesn't actually need to explain these things in detail which is useful, but it's also boring and, and cliche in the same time. If, you're, if your world building creates a whole bunch of new elements that are unique and uh, going beyond the tropes, that's not going to work just, to just throw them out there and expect your reader to understand them. You're going to have to figure out what's relevant and you're going to actually have to describe it. Um, so if you're following our advice from episode one and two and avoiding... Um, just repeating tropes and, and cliches, then you actually have to do the work and do the do the world building and and convey those ideas to your reader, which is uh, not particularly well done in The Witcher. That's quite interesting. And I don't think I'm going to bother watching the rest of the series now, JM. So, oh, you should though. I I I, I knock <laughs> it, but it's it's good. It, it's it's fun. It's fun. Um, it takes you a little while to understand what's going on, but the fight scenes yeah. are awesome. The uh, I uh not Game of Thrones quality uh special effects, but pretty good. And and uh the um God, what's his name? Henry Henry Cavill is just awesome. And I think the most important thing is it's fantasy on television, on on prime television, you know what I mean? So this bodes well for, for those fantasy writers. Uh so given you've just been laying into quite broad well building techniques there, JM. Have you ever come across the minimalist approach? Um, I don't know if I've actually read about it specifically, but it's something I would definitely agree with. Minimalism is is the way to go with world building. Yeah, I think it does tie in with what you were saying about less is more, and this is taking that to an extreme. So it is giving the reader a people view of the world beyond the characters and what 
adventures they're getting up to. Um, and I think it was a couple of years ago now while I was researching a post for the blog, and I came across an article by Patrick Rothfuss. Are you familiar with Patrick Rothfuss? I know who he is. I actually, I just got one of his books. I, 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 don't, I haven't read anything by him yet, but it's definitely on the to-be-read pile. Yeah, he's, he's a good writer, to be fair to him. And he's quite an insightful guy. Um, and I've got a passage here from that article, which is all about well building. And I think it's, I think it'll strike a, strike a chord with every fantasy writer. So here we go. But when you're writing fantasy, especially second world fantasy, the reader doesn't know anything about your world. They don't know the cultures, the religions, magic or cities. The reader doesn't know anything about the myths and legends of the world. Now, a lot of times, this is one of the major selling points of the book. A big payoff of secondary world fantasy is the thrill of exploration. We get to see new countries, fantastic creatures, odd cultures, curious magics, etc., etc. And honestly, this is one of the big perks of being a fantasy writer. We get to build castles in the sky and show them off to people. So here's how it goes wrong. Number one, you create something for your fantasy world, a creature, a culture, a myth. Number two, you're proud of your creation. You're excited about it. You love it with a fierce passion. Number three, you need to describe this thing to your reader because if they don't understand how it works, your story won't make sense. 3B, remember the story is the real reason people are there. Story is everything. Story is God. Number four, so you start to explain how folks in the Shire celebrate their birthdays. This is important because one of the first major events of the book is a birthday party. You talk about how hobbits give presents away at their parties instead of receiving them. This is important because it ties into why Bilbo is going to hand over the ring to Frodo. Then you start talking about how some of these presents get passed back and forth party after party and how those items are actually called mathems, and how there's actually a museum full of mathems at Michael Delving, which is in the West Farthing of the Shire. You see what happens. It's easy for an author to get caught up in the details of the world they created, that they go off the rails and give us more than is really necessary for the story. So I think what Patrick Rothfuss is trying to say is it's a very easy trap to fall into, and then you end up creating the notorious info dump I mean, I think we've all been guilty of this, haven't we, at some stage? I think even the great like Tolkien, in his defence, he wrote it in a different era, but he was guilty of a bit of an info dump. And I remember when I went to look back at my first novel attempt, the first chapter was 12,000 words long. So you know what that means, info dumps, just passages of info dumping, left, right and centre. So I think this minimalist approach is a bit of a backlash against the info dump and the authors indulging too much in the worlds and just delivering it in a really uninspiring way. And I've been reading a lot of upcoming authors of late, helping them with their stories, and it does seem to be a common problem. And finding this balance, this elusive balance, is a tricky part. Yeah, I see so, it. All, I see it all the time. Um, yeah. So Rothfuss, his third point is key, right? If the reader doesn't understand how it works, your story won't make sense. That's key. It's necessary. 
that's when you need to that's when you need to have something in your story because it's necessary to understand how the story works if it doesn't fit that criteria you probably don't need it in your story um but the other thing is yeah we're uh authors we're very prideful and we're very um we we love our our creations and we want to share them and we 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 just we just are overflowing with the need to get this stuff out and what ends up happening like like you said i i've read a lot of authors works and every every fantasy author that i work with i i see it every single time is there's this tendency to just want to dump all of the details right away in the beginning because they're just so amazing and i just i just got to tell you all these cool things about my world um and the first chapter or the first scene or whatever just becomes a a a dumping ground of unnecessary details and not only is it overwhelming and confusing it also leaves no suspense and mystery for the reader it leaves nothing for the reader to ponder or to think about so we're going to move on to principle number two which is is this the right time or place to introduce a particular detail okay so going back to my example of the witcher i'm going to give you uh two examples richie and i want you to tell me which one do you think is more compelling way of developing a narrative so first i can start at the beginning and just do it very straightforward start with the backstory um enemy kingdom invades the friendly kingdom uh overwhelms the capital city and the princess the the heir to the throne manages to escape uh lots of drama lots of battle scenes lots of people dying um and then we follow the princess as she's wandering through the the forest and and uh trying to get her bearings and trying to trying to connect with the the core hero who in the case of the witcher is a Geralt of Rivia. <clears throat> but you can think of this, you don't have to think of it just being the witcher. It can be any story you're thinking of. So the, the lost princess of, of the defeated kingdom is trying to connect with the hero. She eventually finds the hero. And up to that point, we already know everything that's going on. So that's option number one. <clears throat> option number two is we are only following the core hero as he is kind of uh making his way in the world and we are learning of this character and we are bonding with this character and then out of nowhere a girl appears and we don't know who this girl is uh we don't have any of the background information uh we just know that she's important and over time through the through the main character through the hero through the eyes of the hero and the action of the hero we start peeling away the backstory that this girl might be important. She might be royalty, that there was a kingdom and the kingdom was overwhelmed. And then this girl is the last heir to the throne. And that is going to be kind of the core concept of our plot. So of those two options, the straightforward dump the backstory at the beginning option or the, the mystery, the onion approach, I guess you could call it. Which of those do you think is more compelling, Richie? I personally prefer the onion. I do too as well. Yeah, but it depends on the kind of story you want to tell. If you want to tell your story in that way, the best way, 
say that the wrong way to do it. I think it's more of a dated approach. So it's what Tolkien did. Start from the very beginning. Explain everything, including Tom Bombadil. And uh, work your way to the end. For a lot of stories now, you start in the middle of the action. And that's what I personally did in, um, in my novel, soon to be released with a bit of luck. And um, yeah, start right in the middle of the action. And because you say, you, you, what, what editors say is with your opening lines, your page, paragraphs, um, chapters, is you want the reader to ask questions and create intrigue. And if you just tell them everything that they need to know, they're not going to be asking any questions. So we need to provoke a bit of curiosity. And that one, your approach is, a, is one way of doing it. So here's my answer, Joe. So, so speaking of uh, speaking of Tolkien uh, and prologues, um, I, oh, yeah. I think you can see the difference. The I think you can see the difference in the modern approach. The way uh, if you compare the books with all of the dense prologue material and the movie, if you look at the Lord of the Rings movie, how does it start? It starts with right in the action. There's a birthday party, and then there's a ring. And if you were not familiar with any of the Tolkien information, the Tolkien world, you really wouldn't know much of what's going on. It's, it's delivered to you in piecemeal as, as Frodo Baggins is discovering this stuff himself, right? Yeah. Uh, that's definitely the modern approach and what modern readers and modern um, viewers are expecting is that it's not, there's not gonna be this, this dry bulk dumped on them at the very beginning. So speaking of prologues, um, you'll, you'll hear some editors and some agents say straight out that if your book has a prologue that they, it's going to be rejected outright. I don't necessarily agree with that, but I think um, you have to consider, you know, principle number one, when you're do dealing with a prologue, is it relevant to the, to your narrative that you're, that this particular work is dealing with? Um, yeah. So if you if you haven't even started your story, if you haven't begun your narrative, if you don't have a, have an established character, then how can all of that mess of politics and back backstory possibly relate to it? Um, yeah, yeah. You know, my my book in the Valley of Magic has a prologue, but I call it a prologue. It's it's actually kind of a a pseudo short story that serves to start the the book off with action and it's also a, a critical element of understanding the later elements of the plot it just isn't specifically related to the core narrative of the book um which is why i call it a prologue as opposed to a chapter one so you, you can use them it's just you don't want them to be dry and overwhelming and just dumping politics on your on your reader you want to be more nuanced with uh delivering that the uh those elements and this also goes back to so not uh, avoiding a, a dry prologue uh, along the same lines avoid too much world building in your opening chapter and this is something that i see in in with fantasy writers all the time is that they have all these great ideas and they just want to uh just throw everything out all at once. And as, we, as we've mentioned, it leaves no 
space for the reader to 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 think about things, to ponder things, to to have a bit of mystery and suspense. Um, and it's and it it's just too much detail for the reader to take in all at once. And uh, I think uh, Terry Goodkind's Wizard's First Rule is a very good e example of a book that just from the very beginning first chapter is just dumping way too much world building um and irrelevant world building on the reader a whole bunch of like place names and characters names and politics and and um it's weird because the chapter starts the first chapter starts with with something interesting going on there's 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 action the the main character is trying to solve a problem you you're starting off you know you hit the ground running but it gets distracted because there will be paragraphs of just exposition world building that really take you away from that immediate crisis that the main character is trying to solve. And it would be, it would be much better if those were stripped away and we were just focusing on the main character and, and that main, that, the introductory crisis that he's trying to solve. You know, I've spoken to you about Wizard's First Reel before and I am not a fan of that book. I got to about page 350 and just gave up. It's just, oh. I've been reading another old book as well there by Tad Williams called The Dragonbone Chair. And it's it's that similar style. And I do think it's dated. And my, my personal preference is now a focus on characters. Like my writing, the stories I like to tell is I focus on the character and I just like the, the fantasy world setting because of the possibilities. So I have characters experiencing real world problems in a fantasy world and that's what i kind of like um and when i was researching this a while back brandon sanderson had a good bit of advice to say and he he was well he always believed that you should be quite sparse with detail during the first few chapters and the focus should be on the characters because at the end of the day it's the characters that you you grow attached to and they're the ones who drag you along through the story so if you keep your focus on them and concentrate on generating as much empathy toward them as possible that's a good way to do it and then once the character uh, reader's comfortable and they're engaged with the story and the characters then you open the door to the water uh, to the world a little bit wider and you start introducing a few bit more details like you say as and when it feels necessary to the story and like you say, JM, with this onion approach, that is a good way to do it because you reveal different elements of the world as necessary as you progress through the story. So you're peeling away the world and revealing it all in its wonderful glory. I think you make a good point with it, the idea of the, 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 this overwhelming approach being dated. And I, th I think that's an important point is that Writers in the past could get away with it, could get away with, with being a bit overwhelming because there wasn't, there wasn't a big market. There wasn't as much options. So if I wanted to read fantasy, I, I had a limited number of books I could read in, in the 80s, right? Um, now the market is, is flooded. Yeah. There, there, there is no... There is no um, you you brute for brute forcing your your reader uh if you bore your reader in the slightest they are just going to go to another book because there's a million other yeah. books out there so it's it's 
so much more important that you do something you your writing is engaging and and you trim out as much of the fat as possible to not Definitely. risk losing your reader just once because you potentially you lose your reader and you lose your reader and it, it's done it's over yeah, um yeah. There, there's just chance. so much competition now that you just got to be tight with your writing so yeah it is a dated approach and they could get away with it um i've i've uh commented ad, ad nauseum about stephen king's it and how bloated that book is well in the 1980s you could get away with a bloated book because they're readers would deal with it because there wasn't a lot of options if you wanted a, a good fantasy horror horror book like king was the guy you would what you had to go to um now there's there's just too much there's just too much out there the there's there's so much competition that 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 doesn't work work in your favor anymore so cool, uh, and and i think um if you are overwhelming your reader with too much detail your book ends up just being basically a roller coaster so it, it might be a fun ride but everything is passing by too fast for the reader to notice anything so yeah you might it, it might be fun and it might be um a thrilling experience but your reader's not going to remember any of it and they're not going to remember you um unfortunately yeah and at the end of the day you, you want your readers to take away the theme, the premise, the message that you're trying to convey. What is your story about at the end of the day? And you want um, them to remember you and, exactly, and, and yeah. that you're a good writer and that they like you because of these ideas. Yeah, and you gave them an experience that they enjoyed. And yeah, you don't want to rush it. You don't want to ruin it. So, yeah. So moving on to principle number three, and probably the one that's most important to all of you, how do you do it mechanically? How do you uh, convey your world building details? So you skipped your prologue. How do you inject backstory once you're in the middle of the narrative? Well, one common way to do this is through dialogue. Um, I've already mentioned uh, The Witcher is filled with uh, world building dialogue. Uh, the problem is that you need to make sure, one, that it's interesting and relevant, but two, you need to make sure that the dialogue itself makes sense. If you have <clears throat> two master wizard characters having a discussion, they are not going to discuss the basic mechanics of magic. Yeah. They already know this, both of these characters. There's no reason for them to discuss how magic works. Um, if you have two lords who are knees deep in political intrigue and they've been doing this for years, they're not going to have a debate about a political situation that they've long known about. Um, yeah. This is where having an outsider character is useful, especially like uh, dealing with like describing like a magic system, um, having a, an, an apprentice wizard or something who is actually learning how magic works real time uh, is a is a good way of delivering that information and you use di dialogue to do it yeah as opposed to exposition um and the other thing is when you're having characters like kings and lords and whatnot debating politics don't have that be an entire chapter of the book hint hint yeah. witcher um it may, mm. it's very dry and very annoying and, and very distracting what do you think richie yeah um definitely agree with you there 
Um, I mean, on the subject of dialogue, Brandon Sanderson he cropped up a few times this episode, but he does have very good advice for writers. And one of them, when it comes to revealing the world, is through something he call he terms maiden butler dialogue, which means essentially that characters should discuss things that they know about but the reader does not and like you say they shouldn't be talking about things that they already know about uh, because it just comes across as forced it's like deliberate the dialogue has no purpose other than to inform the reader and that's not what you really want you want it to be interesting you want it to be like to and fro and a bit more dynamic um but yeah, the yeah. key is that the, the characters should be discussing things that they know about, right? So maiden a maiden butler having a having a dialogue are not going to be conveying details about the the heritage of the royal line or something that the aristoc you know, something that, that is known by the aristocracy but not known by the lower class. Yeah, definitely. That's essentially yeah. And that does work quite well, I, I find. Uh, so in addition to dialogue, another technique you can use, um, especially when you're dealing with historical or political details or mythology, is to present them through in-narrative texts. Um, these can be history books that your characters uncover or uh, uh, poems or songs. So if you think Tolkien... Uh, a lot of the the kind of the backstory, um, like in the Hobbit, the dwarves are are singing these songs about how they they lost their their homeland and 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 going back to it. Um, so through song and poetry, or maybe uh, your characters intercept a diplomatic letter that conveys key plot details. Um, it happens all the time in real life, in real history, and it makes it tangible it makes those details tangible um yeah i think that's a, a great point it's it's them little details that they're like sort of thinking of those like pieces of the puzzle and gradually you're just sort of building the puzzle and them little parts just add so much curiosity and intrigue to the story and you sort of gradually remove the shroud of mystery like what you say dropping hints through things like texts and songs and poems is a great way to do that. Being a historian myself, like a lot of my stories, a lot of my books have, have libraries and have history books in them. And it's an interesting way of interject, inserting like inserting names, historical characters and names in your, in, in your, in, into your world. Um, You know, Oh, it's this is uh this is Cuth- Cuthbert's uh, volume on uh, on ravens because he was the raven guy, um, yeah. and and like books are important unless you're talking like unless you're dealing with something that's like very ancient or you know tribal type culture, like books are important. Um, books are everywhere, so uh, it's a way of making your world feel real um, and conveying information at the same time. Another way, uh, another technique is through the actual, so we talked about dialogue, so, so injecting world-building facts into your dialogue, but 
the language itself, the language that characters use is another important world building tool. And whether or not your world feels real and feels unique will depend a lot on how people talk. So <clears throat> if, you think about the, if you think about the real world, our world is filled with different groups of people, different cultures, different uh, countries, different backgrounds, different classes. And, and um, they have, you know, even within one language, you have different dialects and you have different types of slang and idiom. Um, your world, your second, your second world setting should have all of that too. On the flip side, it should not be using overly earthly idioms or overly earthly terms. Um, that's a very quick way of destroying suspension of disbelief in your reader. So we have, idioms are such a, such a integrated part of our language that we use them without even thinking about them. And you have to be very cautious <clears throat> as you're writing that you're not dumping earth idioms into your prose for a setting that is not set on earth. So one of them that uh, uh, came up uh, in a story that I was editing for our Of Metal and Magic anthology, somebody wrote, uh, it was a wake-up call for the hero or something along those lines. Well, if you think about where does the phrase wake-up call come from, and you, and you understand the historical origin of that phrase, if you don't have hotels and telephones in your setting, you can't have the phrase wake up call. Uh, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't make any sense, right? Medieval hotel. Yeah, a medieval hotel, yeah, with a, with a cup and string. Uh, <laughs> so first, first and foremost, make sure that you're not using idioms and slang that doesn't fit your setting. Second thing, create new idioms and slang unique to your world to help build that world. So references to past characters, references to past situations, past historical events um, will, be, will develop into idiomatic phrases that people use. <clears throat> the other thing is, uh, it's kind of a sad reality of the human experience that differences among people create conflict rather than create unity. So when people speak about other groups, they tend to use pejorative terms to describe outside groups. Adding these to your world will make it seem like a more genuine world where there is conflict and there is interaction and there's different groups of people. Um, and it also is a way of introducing uh, cultures and, and races and ethnic groups and class groups to your, to your reader through this kind of, uh, you know, intergroup uh, conflict. Yeah, that's a great point. And just going back to the one before that last one about um, creating idioms and phrases and things like that. Um, I mean, I've had great feedback from readers when I've introduced this into my stories. Like, I, I'm, I don't know about you. Sometimes when I'm I'm writing dialogue, I feel a temptation to say, "Oh, what on earth?" Well, like, obviously, he's not going to say earth. So, like in the of metal and magic universe. Um, I say what in Soria, and readers have said that's even it's a, it's a small thing to do, but readers really appreciate it because it feels like the characters are living in that secondary world that that is 
their, their lives are sort of fleshed out and that's gone down pretty well with readers. So I think it's something that helps draw people further into the story and should should be done more of when you're introducing your world building. Yeah, I think one, one of the, uh, I, I was trying to think of uh, of a way of a character conveying the sense of uh, this guy can go piss off. And yeah. I didn't want it to be, I didn't want to use a common earth phrase. So I ended up, I think I ended up going with uh, uh, the Baron can go sleep in a barn or something. Yeah. So it doesn't even have to be uniquely to you. It doesn't have to be uniquely tied to some, some uh, new element of your world. Just coming up with a new phrase, a new way of, 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 of saying that idiom um, can, can achieve the same, the, the same uh, effect of making it feel new and, and fresh. Yeah, and keep it consistent with the kind of world that you've created. Like you say, if it's a medieval agricultural world, then go and sleep in the barn or whatever you said. That's consistent with the world. And it's the kind of thing people in that world would say. I also had to figure out a way of doing it without using a cuss word because that the publisher uh, didn't want to have any bad words in it. So that was part of the motivation as well. So how do I do this subtly but have the same effect? Go sleep so in a barn. What do you do when you can swear? <laughs> so uh, to wrap things up, going just go back to the the principles that we stated at the beginning remember principle number one only provide details that are relevant to the story at hand so we authors we're, we're a weird bunch we tend to be on the one hand overly sensitive and self-critical critical of our actual writing the, the prose oh my writing sucks uh, the prose is is garbage i can't write Wah. um but we're obnoxiously proud of our ideas um also true. I, right i have all these great ideas about magic and 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 creatures and 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 politics and stuff like that and you uh, fantasy authors tend to be very very proud of those ideas and you should be you should be proud of your ideas that's what that's what drives us to want to write right but it's important for a fantasy author to know what are the key points that need to be conveyed in order to support this plot in this character the fan the fantasy author needs to know how their world works they shouldn't be just winging it and just creating things on the fly there should be a foundation um because if they if you are just making things up it'll be obvious to your reader but it doesn't and it doesn't mean you have to abandon all of these great ideas that you have that aren't relevant to your particular narrative it just means finding a different project for those particular elements that don't fit on to the current project. So I find uh, writing spin-off short stories is a great way to explore world building ideas that don't fit into a, in a particular book and publishing short stories is also a good way to build your author brand, to draw readers to your books, to get publicity. So if you do have an idea, a really, really great world building idea that doesn't fit in your novel, write it into a short story and use that as a marketing tool. Um, yeah. But at the end of the day, uh, you can just remember the, that famous quote from Stephen King where he said, kill your darlings, kill your darlings. 
even when it breaks your egocentric little scribbler's heart, kill your darlings. Yeah, might be true. the most it might be the most incredible idea to you, but it doesn't mean your reader will agree, and it doesn't mean your reader is going to care. And amongst uh, over over anything else, your readers tend to care about your characters and what is relevant and important to those characters. Um, anything that keeps those keeps your readers separated from those characters for for too long is going to be annoying and irrelevant and and it's just going to be a distraction yeah nail on the head so before we wrap it up though i just wanted to talk a bit about actually building your world because in over the past few weeks we've received quite a few questions about this and we've promised to talk about it so here it is um, so, I don't know about you, JM, when I build my worlds, one of the best approaches I've come across is, again, I think this is the third time I've mentioned him in this episode, it's Brandon Sanderson. And he, he's come up with a great way, I think, of of building your world and breaking it down into manageable portions. Because I think when you're faced with the prospect of building an entire world and an entire culture, it's just a bit monumental. So... What he does is breaks it into two. There's the physical aspects of the world, and then you have the cultural aspects. So the physical encompass all the things that would exist if human didn't. So, for example, the terrain, the flora, the fauna, weather, cosmology, geology, laws, physics. Um, I mean, in one of Brandon Sanderson's own books, for example, uh, Mistborn, the world is plagued by ash falls and dense mists which descend each night. And then, of course, you've got Terry Pratchett's disc whale books, which involve a whale constructed on the back of a giant turtle floating through space. And then we've got the cultural side, which is pretty much everything else. Um, it covers everything that's influenced by man or things that can be physically, physically manipulated or changed, such as laws, politics, religion, governments, language, structures, Landmarks, philosophies, foods, music, fashion, folklore, weapons, technology, clothing, histories, rights, jobs, medicines. I mean, you could go on forever on that list. Uh, I mean, it will be absolutely impossible to write a book of readable length if you covered every single one of them things. And the trick, I think, which I've seen quite a lot of authors do successfully is to pick a few of them and explore them in particular detail. So I always remember one book in particular by Raymond Feist, which I can't remember the name of, but there's a character called Taron of the Silverhawk, Taron anyway, and he really gets really into cooking. So this brilliant warrior all of a sudden becomes a, a renowned chef. <laughs> and, he got, and Feist spends quite a lot of time exploring the different foods in the world. And it was quite interesting, actually. I mean, George R. R. Martin is quite similar. Um, he, we were talking a bit before about songs and poems. He, he includes a lot of songs and poems throughout the story, and especially scenes set meals, like a play significant parts. We've obviously got the, the Red Wedding. Um, quite a significant scene in in the series. Um, but I think coming back to San what Sanderson's advice is, he was to say, if you 
for the, the sake of the story, we always want to be seeking conflicts. And if you can find conflicts between the cultural settings that you choose to explore, it can be a great way of, of building suspense, tension, and excitement for your story. So, for example, you could have a clash between religion and science or religion and magic. I mean, what, what, what role does religion play if magic exists? Um, and you can have a character that cares passionately about a setting. I mean, like going back to Talon of the Silverhawk, he was really passionate about cooking. Um, that makes it a bit more interesting when you, you follow a character that, with that sort of mindset. And, and like you say, um, focusing on just a couple elements because those elements are core to your story. So yeah. you might have a conflict between religion and old magic and you're exploring that because that's the plot of your story. Your character, whatever he's doing is involved in this, is, is related to this conflict. So you have to explore those elements in order for the plot to make sense. That, that's why you're doing it. So when you're, building you know when you're thinking about your world and what story you want to tell that's kind of what you're what you're thinking about is what 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 angle you know you might start with a theme like i want to i want to explore magic is what 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 my story was going to be about well then you develop a plot and a narrative that that explores that concept that you want to you want to dive into to make it relevant yeah, that's that's exactly it. Yeah, um, and just a final point which came up recently um, in my browsings of the web, um, which is when you're building your world, how I mean, use real in, in inverted commas. How real does your world need to be? Um, the 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 posting question which ground my gears was a complaint about fantasy writers including potatoes in their medieval European settings because potatoes weren't introduced into Europe until the 1700s which was after the medieval times and this guy was moaning that writers were putting potatoes in, in medieval European fantasy stories I mean could do one mate you know what I mean potatoes well, it's kind of like the argument it's kind of like the argument of uh well, well, women weren't weren't knights in in you know Franco-Germanic medieval Europe. Well, I'm yeah, not writing exactly. about I'm not writing about France and Germany. I'm writing about my world, and I can do what I want. <laughs> exactly. So, I think what you need to do when it, when you sitting down to build a world is is use what you know as the starting point as the foundation, and as much as you can, just on shock of your mind, nothing has to be the same. You could have brown, uh, blue leaves if you wanted to on trees. You could have six moons instead of one. I mean, the, the thing I love about fantasy more than anything else is the fact that things can be changed, that nothing's set in stone. Possibilities are endless. Um, so enjoy the freedom to do whatever the hell you want. And have your characters eating potatoes if you want. Nothing but potatoes. Why not make them potatoes themselves? Potatoes with arms and legs feuding with their mortal enemies, the chips. 
so like I say, what we know of our world serves as our basis, our starting point, and then do whatever the hell you want. I, I think you I think you make a really good point. Like does does the story need to be real? Well, it depends on what you mean by the word real. Does your story need to be real as in earthly our world real? No, of course not. Yeah. Your story needs to be real to itself. Yeah, yeah. It needs to be real. It needs to feel real within the world that you're creating. Things need to fit and things need to make sense. And if people are eating potatoes and people are eating potatoes and if uh if uh if women are knight knights and lords and landowners, then women are knights and land and land and landowners. They just, you just, need, to be, you just need to be uh, consistent with what you're doing within your world to make that feel real to it in and of itself. Definitely. So that's it for another episode. Well, building wrapped up. We'll no doubt come back to it at some stage because it is such a huge topic. Uh, so thanks very much for listening. It was a bit of a, long, a longer one, this uh, this episode, but I, we both agreed that it, it warranted more discussion. Um, so as always, if you enjoyed it, please like, share, comment, and follow us. Um, we do this for you. So if you want to want us to cover any particular topics write to us and tell us and we'll we'll try our best to get to it next episode we're going to be talking about short stories yeah this guy over here jm he's a bit of a whiz when it comes to short stories how many have you had published jm uh i'm at about 45 now i think i also studied short stories in college so like short stories is that's my my big background it was a big jump for me to move from the short story to the novel kind of longer length and the other thing is uh send us your questions as always um we'll pick one question at the beginning of the next episode and uh, send somebody a, a book so you know facebook whether it's facebook or or YouTube or any other, the email address, um, send us, send us your questions and they don't have to be related about this topic. They don't have to be related about the upcoming topic. They can be anything that you have, uh, on your mind right now. All right then. So that's it for, for this one. See you next time. See you next time.